Good morning, Grace Chapel. It's good to see you on this uh, wonderful winter uh, day. I was going to say Christmas. Um, Snowy day. Um, How's your day going so far? Well, today, Daniel's three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get tossed into a fiery furnace. So how's your day going? Yeah. Let's review chapter one of Daniel. We, uh, we saw God demonstrate his ability. We're going to see that in every chapter. But in chapter one, God demonstrates his ability to bless. Do you believe that God blesses? And we saw him bless his faithful followers. Even, listen, about, listen to this carefully. He blessed his faithful followers even when they are forced to serve their enemy. Forced to serve their enemy. No choice in the matter and to live in a culture without biblical morals. Because God is able. That's not a big deal for him. And in chapter 2, last week, we saw God demonstrate his capacity. His capacity to know everything. He just knows. Uh, we, we, we'd like to remind him of things. He doesn't need reminding, right? He knows all things, even the precise details of the future of this planet. Like he knows what's happening next week. He knows what's happening to each one of us this afternoon. And he controls all things. He can even give a dream to a pagan king. God is able. Ironically, last week we saw that Nebuchadnezzar's dream anticipates the destruction of the temporary Gentile world system that you and I live in today. And, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was leading it at, at that time, and God told him, you know, it's, coming all, it's all coming down one day. So the big idea, the point of the dream last week, which is really important for us to, to, to remind ourselves of this, is that we need to get our eyes of satisfaction off of this world. There are important things going on, I get it, but we need to get our eyes off that and long, while we live in this world, long for God's promised coming kingdom, his kingdom come, the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. It was Jesus' prayer that he taught us. And in chapter 3 today where we're going, God's going to continue to demonstrate to us his ability, but now to protect. And I know this is a, a lot of debate on this. Does God really protect us as we go through this life? Uh, He's going to show that he can protect his faithful followers even when they're the objects of a mighty ruler's narcissistic-inspired anger. (laughs) It doesn't matter who's in control. God can protect. So in chapter 3, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn to Daniel. We're going to have it up here, but I'm looking, I'm seeing, yeah, so that's that's messed up too. So uh, do your best, all right? Like people online, you should have stayed home. Uh, (laughs) It's better online. No, but... uh, You'll be okay. Open your Bible. In uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar erects this huge golden plate uh, statue. It's just, it's 90 feet tall. I mean, it's just mind-boggling when you think about the amount of gold that went into it. And it's kind of strange. Don't you think it's kind of strange that Daniel chose this story to follow up the last story when, after his dream, what did Nebuchadnezzar learn? What did he learn? That it is Yahweh, it is the God of Daniel, who's given him the right to rule, right? But maybe he's thinking, I mean, think about how we think, we humans, in our feeble attempts to try to make sense of things. Okay, so this almighty God, 
one of many gods to Nebuchadnezzar, right? But he's a great god. He said, I was the head of gold. <laughs> and so he extrapolates that, and, uh, and, and he also realizes, you know, during my lifetime, if I really think about that statue and Daniel's interpretation of that statue, that decimating rock that is coming, that's going to hit it in the feet and destroy the whole thing, that comes after me. I'm not even going to be around when that happens. So why not honor my rule that God has given me? So there's all kinds of things that you and I do with situations in life to make sense of it and to help ourselves. Anyway, the text does not give us the specific identity of the image. It just tells us he made an image. But there's an association that Nebuchadnezzar and his magicians all make between the statue and the worship of their gods, the pantheon of gods that they worship. And it's in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And that suggests to us that this statue, this is, this is kind of interesting, the statue probably represented one of their deities, and if we know the egotistical nature of Nebuchadnezzar, it was probably Nabu. Yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about the Lion King here. Just, Nabu was, the, was a god in the pantheon, a great god in the pantheon of uh, Babylonian gods, after whom Nebuchadnezzar was named. So it makes a lot of sense that he would do that. And by the way, this is ironic, the irony of God. Uh, Nabu's a major god, right, in the Babylonian pantheon. And guess what his symbols were? A clay tablet and a stylus for, for writing. And what did he do? That God wrote the fates assigned to men by the gods. He wrote them down in clay tablets. And what has Nebuchadnezzar just learned? That the fates of men are controlled by Daniel's God, not his God after whom he's named. Now, that's a big woe, right? It's got to be like for Nebuchadnezzar. Well, it hasn't taken yet. We're going to see. Verses 2 and 3, Nebuchadnezzar summons all his, uh, his uh, satraps, the provincial governors, everybody who's in charge, all the administrative officials, and he demands that they bow down before this golden image that he has created. And in verse 6, we see anybody refusing to do so, all God's people said, kill him. Yeah, throw him in the fiery furnace. You refuse me, you're done. And he could say, you're toast. And they, they would be. That was, that was a fun break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Burned in the fiery furnace. Some of you are just getting it. It's like, a, it's like an echo. It's like, anyway, ouch. So everyone does what? They do what they're told because you want to avoid being consumed. Because so you put yourself in a situation. You're standing there. The harps and the lyres play and uh, the music starts and you're supposed to bow down. So what do you do? Well, Everybody bows down, except Daniel's three friends, right? You know the story? In verses 7 through 12, they refuse to obey the king's edict. And some of the king's officials, who are being really nosy because they're supposed to be bowing down, but some of the king's officials, probably, probably by this time, they're pretty jealous of these three foreigners who have risen so quickly at a young age through the ranks. They're probably pretty jealous, looking for ways to slip them up. And remember, even though these are the guys who in the last chapter saved their skin, all the magicians, they tattle. They come in and they tattle to Nebuchadnezzar. Life can be pretty cutthroat, can it? 
It doesn't matter whether you're a child of God or not. We live in this world, and life can be pretty cutthroat. And none of us are exempt from that, not even Daniel's three friends. So Neb, or as the young adults at their Thursday night study call him, Nebi, um, summons the three men, and interestingly, what does he do? He gives them one more chance. Isn't that interesting? Don't you find that amazing? It just stuck out at me as soon as I read it. He gives them another chance to comply with his order. I don't think if anybody else had refused to bow, there would have been a second chance. I'm thinking he's just going, okay, you're in. Put him in. He's really ticked off. But notice he still has this soft spot for these three guys, and I'm thinking it's because of Daniel. It's because of what Daniel has proven so far in his life, uh, who must have been out of town at the time because he's not in our story. In verse 15, now if you are ready, Nebuchadnezzar says to them, now if you are ready. Well, weren't they ready before? No, he's giving them a chance. When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the, the trigon, we need to get one of those uh, mats, a trigon. We need to have that in our, in our worship next week. I have no idea what it is. A harp, even, it's even a bagpipe. I mean, it's Scots here, everybody from all over the world. Uh, just probably not. And every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship like you just didn't, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Listen to this next line. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Don't you think that for a moment, Nebuchadnezzar says, don't you think for a moment that someone is going to come riding up on a white horse and get you all out of this mess? But that statement he makes... That's quite a statement. And as a believer in God, which I trust you are this morning, when you read this, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Don't you kind of go, uh-oh, <laughs> you shouldn't have said that, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, what did you not learn from chapter 2? It shows you how total power can totally corrupt. Even when the truth is plain in front of your face. And I think it's helpful for us to consider that probably Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement of God back in chapter 2 that we read was pretty explicit, and, 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 and possibly it was just an addition that he was making to his pantheon of gods. Daniel's God at this point um, was uh, just to Nebuchadnezzar a God who reveals mysteries. That's what he did in chapter 2. He's a very great God. Yes, yes, very great God, but he's not the only God. And we'll revisit this when we get to the next chapter. It's going to come up big time. But the three men stood their ground. This is probably maybe one of the largest themes of this chapter for us to, to think about in the day and age in which we live. They stood their ground. They didn't draw the line in the sand. They drew it in concrete. And they told the most powerful king on the earth to his face, not in a text, a king whom they knew had, had revealed to him that all of his power had come from Yahweh. They said their God was capable of saving them, even from fire. So, verse 16, 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
we have no need to answer you in this matter. It's, it's like they're going, Neb, this is a no-brainer. If this be so, this all happens, I want you to know our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. Right? I, 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 back at you, Nebuchadnezzar, O king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is already angry, right? He's pretty upset. He's been upstaged by these three foreigners. And he's even shown them mercy, all right? Like he's, in his mind, bent over backwards by giving them that second chance. This would be a, what? Are you this insolent? And deliver you from my hand? I hold everything. I got the power. But there's even a bigger theme that's coming out for you and I today here in the next verse, verse 18. But if not, they say, if God's sovereign choice is to let us burn, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So, the certainty of our physical rescue, if it comes to that one day, the certainty of our financial rescue, the certainty of our marriage rescue, the certainty of our kids and grandkids rescue shouldn't dictate our faith choices. It has nothing to do with it. But it often does, doesn't it? Our safety if it has to be obtained by compromise with sin, does not dictate our faith choices. To save our situation, like our popularity at work or with a neighbor or at school, to save our position at work by doing what our boss or our company requires that is illegal, unethical, or even immoral, to sacrifice our conscience before God, to take the easy path before men and women, to conform outwardly, to go along with the crowd. Likely every one of us in this room has been tempted in some way like this last week. <laughs> in some way. And we will be. It's going to get worse. There's the good news. Aren't you glad you came today? But how did we respond? And now from seeing what God has for us, how will we now react? And this is where God's Word, through the illuminating power of God's Holy Spirit, can change the course of each of our lives by the choices we make. Like, like Job. Remember Job? Great backdrop for Daniel. In the middle of his suffering, Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 22, then Job arose. You know when he arose? Right after having the worst day in the history of mankind. Everything. Wealth. Flesh and blood. Torn away. Horribly. And he tore his robe, which was the custom of the day to really show how broken you are. He shaved his head. 
And he fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked shall I return. You've heard that expression before. This is where it comes from. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Really? Really? And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Thirteen chapters later, Job said in verse 16, This will be my salvation. This is what the three young men were doing. That the godless shall not come before him. God first in everything. Like, like Habakkuk, the minor prophet, who we looked at just a couple years ago, who praised God even in the suffering. Listen to this. This is so for us today. Habakkuk 3, 17-18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no, no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, everything you work for has been taken away and is not working out. Your economy is destroyed. All the security and safety and comfort that comes from the things that make the United States great is gone. Yet, if that happens, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Is that true of us in the way we conduct ourselves in relationships with us? No. I don't want to go there. It's too convicting. Like the apostles in the New Testament who rejoice at the opportunity. <laughs> this is, you might think, that's sick, but this is life. This is real. Who rejoice at the opportunity to endure a beating for the name of Jesus. It's in Acts 5, 27, 29. And when they had brought them, this is the second time they've been brought before the council, they set them, the apostles, before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, you know what, last time you were here, I mean, did you not hear us? We strictly charged you that you not teach in this name. He couldn't even say the name Jesus at this point, right? Don't teach in that name. May it never be uttered. Yet, here you filled Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's, you still can't say his name, this man's blood upon us? But Peter said on behalf of the other apostles, we must obey God rather than man. If it comes down to Jesus or something else, guess who always going to win? is what they're saying. And then they got the beating. They got the beating of their life. And it says that they rejoiced afterwards. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer. And their answer reveals that any ruler, anybody, whether it's in your job or in your county or in your nation or in this world, any ruler who doesn't acknowledge God will have an extremely warped perspective on things. Just know that. We'll have an extremely warped perspective on how things work and what really matters. And the world in which you and I exist has, always has had, a terribly warped perspective because they don't acknowledge God. 
And you and I, our response is that you and I need to pray like we've never prayed before, like we should have been praying. That God would illuminate those in our family who don't get it, those in our city who don't get it, those in churches in America who don't get it, people in high levels of government in the federal level who don't get it. We have nothing to say if we're not praying for them. Remember earlier in chapter 2, Neb had acknowledged God. Remember that? He did. He, he, he said this in verse 47 of chapter 2, that Daniel's God was the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But now he's talking as if that sovereign God doesn't even exist. How quickly we can flip-flop as the moment dictates. I want you to spend some time with me in verses 19 through 23. Listen, listen to this as the story continues. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face changed. There had been a little chance up at this point. Now it, it's done against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I want them to really burn. <laughs> like, like, it's hot enough for them to burn. I want them to burn. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Ironically, again, there's so much irony in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's mighty order resulted in the death of his own soldiers demonstrating the fact that our God is able to protect his servants better than any ruler here Nebuchadnezzar can protect his. But it's what happens next that most of us are familiar with, with this story. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Didn't we just cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and he said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. It's an amazing miracle. It's an amazing spectacle, an amazing act of our all-sovereign God who each one of us serves today. That's the same God. God can and he will suspend the very natural course of things. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. Nor does he always respond this way. Stuff usually burns when it's exposed to flames, right? Yeah. There are lots of martyrs that you and I can read about in the history books, martyrs for the name of Jesus Christ who died hundreds of years ago because they burned as soon as they were lit up. So the king describes here a fourth figure walking with them. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But first, Nebuchadnezzar orders. Did you notice that? He's still given orders I mean, because that's who he is. 
Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out out of the furnace. And I wondered, I mean, if you were in there walking around in this searing heat and flame and you're okay and there's a fourth individual walking around with you that just come out of nowhere, do you want to leave? I'm just, I'm like, I'd be like, no, can we, can we stay here for a while? This is like awesome. I mean, I mean, maybe that's just me. And then the fourth finger said, no, you better go. So um, they emerged completely unscathed, verse 27. They saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men because God has the power. And their hair on their head, hands, heads was not even singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And this is wild. And no smell of the fire had come on them. What's Neb's response? He praised their God. Here's the second time he's done this that we have recorded for us. He praises God this time as the one who delivers his loyal and courageous followers. Yahweh's list of abilities in the head of Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to grow longer. It's becoming a longer list, and it will get longer as we go through the rest of this book. He's now the revealer of mysteries and the deliverer of his faithful followers. In verse 28, so Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why don't you make him your God, Nebuchadnezzar, um, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, my command, is what he's saying, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Man, he nailed it, didn't he? I mean, this is coming from a pagan king. He got it here. And then Neb goes on even further in issuing a decree. Therefore, he makes a decree. I make a decree. Any people, nation or language that speaks anything, wouldn't this be an awesome decree for us as Christians? Speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. I guess he's out of the fire business now. And now it's like, you're gonna, we're just going to attach you to horses and you're done. Okay, so maybe it's that kind of a thing. Limb from limb, and your houses will be laid in ruins because there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Unless he's your God. The irony of this is so self-evident. When you look at the end of this chapter and the decree that he gives and compare it to the first decree he made at the beginning of the chapter to bow down to his image, I mean, it's so ironic. And also note this huge event, what it's done. Jews, who, if you know the history books, they're becoming a growing population in the province of Babylon because there are at least three deportations from Judah that are coming by the tens of thousands. They've been brought as slaves, captured people back to, to, to the province of Babylon over the next 20 years in this, at this time. And they are now coming into a foreign country and they can freely declare their God to anyone without fear of reprisal. Like anybody's going to be like, they might want to say something. It's like, no, don't, don't, don't say anything because you'll be torn limb from limb, <laughs> right? Don't say anything at all. And you're predisposed to have to listen to what they tell you about their God. It's awesome. You see, God can do that if he wills. If he wills it, he can even do this. So this story is way bigger than the rescue of three men out of a fire. 
It's about 70 years of Jews living in Babylon telling them about God, Yahweh. And then the king, verse 30, last, last verse, the king promoted. I mean, they already were in a high position because of what Daniel did for him in the last chapter. Now he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon, and all the other magicians are going, oh, we can't beat these guys. Now we can't even say anything against them. All right, so we've got a few minutes left, and I, what I wanted to do is spend some time on the sons of the gods, that, what, what Nebuchadnezzar called that fourth individual walking around in the fiery furnace. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar explains what he meant when he said the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. He identifies the figure as what? An angel. An angel. The Aramaic word that Daniel writes down here is the word for messenger. Your God has sent his angel. Literally, God has sent his messenger to you guys. And calling the angel, calling the fourth individual an angel or a messenger, um, and calling him a son of the gods is, might be kind of strange to us. Like, we're like, what, what is that all about? I mean, it's strange. It's consistent. It's consistent with the expression sons of God as it is used in all the other Old Testament passages. In the Old Testament, members of God's, Yahweh's heavenly assembly that are before him. We see those images through Isaiah and a few of the other prophets when they get this, this vision of the throne room of God. And they're referred to this way as the sons of God in, in, in Scripture. It's in Genesis. It's in Job. It's in the Psalms. It's in Deuteronomy over and over again. So this idea in ancient literature, including the Old Testament, um, it was the same view that the Babylonians had. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is operating with. And he sees this fourth figure, and he sees the delivery, and he immediately goes, so the God must have sent one of his messengers from his throne room. He said, uh-oh, guys are in trouble. Go down and help them. This is the picture that Nebuchadnezzar has. And their head God, by the way, was Marduk. And he was referred to as Bel, B-E-L who had messengers. He had actually had sons and daughters, um, lesser gods in his throne room, who at his whim he could send wherever he wanted and they had to go do it. In Israel, the Jews had the same view of a throne room where Yahweh sas, sits on the throne, the one God. So Neb isn't too far off. However, and this is a huge however for us as we read Scripture, Babylonian mythology was still a very poor, corrupt knockoff of the original. In God's throne room, there are a myriad of created beings, some of them even angels, some of them cherubim, seraphim, all kinds of crazy creatures, but they're all created. None of them are gods. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are joined by this fourth individual who had the appearance of a divine being of some kind to Nebuchadnezzar. And many see this as a physical appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Christ, before his incarnate form in the New Testament. And others see it as being one of the messengers of God, one of the powerful angels. In either case, I'm not going to go there right now, but in either case... What, we're, what, we're, what are we given here? 
we're given a physical demonstration of God's promise to come to his children's aid when they are in distress. It's a graphic fulfillment of, of God's promise to be with us, and it's physical. You can actually see it there, him providing the relief. It's, in Isaiah, this is really cool, in Isaiah 40, 43, Isaiah is prophesying about God, and he says in verse 2 of, of 43, when you pass through the waters, he's talking to the children of Israel, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. You won't drown. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you and carry you away. When you walk through the fire, where did that come from? What fire? Well, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Wow. That's God. God's throne room. Filled with a myriad of created beings, we are told too innumerable to count. And he said to one of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go protect them. You know, there's even a special group, which we're gonna, I'm going to talk about a little bit right now because we're going to get there when we get later in Daniel. There was a special group in God's throne room, which is referred to in Scripture as a divine council of created beings, created messengers, not God's. And there's rank and order in that council, those messengers. And they're going to show up later in this book. That's why I'm saying it now. And we know them by the names in this book of Gabriel and Michael. There's only two angels in the Bible who we know their names, other than Lucifer, the fallen angel. And the archangel Michael is actually going to be mentioned. We're going to, we're going to get to him. He's mentioned in Jude verse 9. He's mentioned in Revelation 12, and he's going to be mentioned again in Daniel 10. So he's one of the great messengers of God. Then the other one's Gabriel, and we've heard his name every Christmas, right? We hear Gabriel's name. He's the only other angel named in the Bible, and he's mentioned in Daniel 8. We're going to, we're going to see him in 9. And what he is there, he's a messenger who comes from God to speak to Daniel. And in one instance, he's actually there to answer his prayer. He's identified as God's messenger in Luke. I mentioned that earlier in verse 19 where he tells Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You see, there is this thing going on. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. So God said, Gabriel, Zechariah gone. He's there. And then we read in, in later in that chapter in verse 26 of Luke 1, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, again, he's, he's, he's having a busy month. It's like, okay, all right, I'll go. Was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to, uh, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And we're only given these few instances. I'm sure this is like going on all the time. And what we're going to see is that angels, created beings, not gods, not to be worshipped, the angels come to Daniel's aid later in this book. He prays to God for help. They bring him visions of the future that God wants Daniel to write down for the nation of Israel and for you and I today to look at and to be encouraged to take hope of, out of. And there's an encouraging truth that comes out of this event. 
our trials that we all are going through or will, whether they're great or small, can always serve to bring us closer to God. And God gives us a living, visible picture of this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I want to finish this morning by reading from Hebrews. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 talks about what we're going through today and what we will be going through in the future, verses 5 through 15. And have you forgotten? Yes, God, I do forget. I get distracted. I get my eyes off what really matters and get it on things that are temporal. And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Maybe the angels are called the sons of God by their creation, but I am called a son of God by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for my sin, and I've been adopted into the family of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, because it will come. It does come. Nor, the, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he cherishes every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Draw your line in the concrete. Take your stand. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there? whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to him. They did the best they could that they knew how. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Yes, it does. And rather unpleasant, right? But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the, hol and for the holiness without, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, for by it many have become defiled." If we learn anything from Daniel chapter 3, it should revolve around this. I need to purposefully, deliberately submit myself to the will of God, whatever it is. Whether I like it or not, our comfort, your comfort, my comfort is closely related to our consent to follow and submit our need. As long as we fight the will of God, as long as we battle God's right to rule the way He wants to rule, the peace and comfort won't be available to us. It'll remain distant. We'll see it in other people and say, gee, I wish I had that. But when, when we surrender, when we bow our knee, there's a peace that flows like a river. I think there's a song. And attendeth my way. And the will of God is inseparable from the character of God because the will of God is always good because God is 
always good. It never goes any other way. And so when you and I pray, and we have to pray more than we do, we pray prayers of faith, not prayers of fatalism. That's how the world's going to look at it, but I don't care. I'm going to pray the way that God instructs me to pray. And I repeat the prayer of Jesus Christ at the end of everything I ask for. Your will be done, not mine, not as I want, but as you want. And we can pray for each other. We should be praying for each other so much more because there's comfort in our prayers. There's comfort in asking God for His care, for His blessing, for His protection. There's comfort in expressing your desires, your hopes, your plans. But there's even more comfort and peace to be found in wrapping all that in the acknowledgement that Jesus showed us so clearly in His prayer in the garden. Wrapping it all in that, that God, ultimately, this is your will that needs, that's going to happen. And I'm good with that, and I'm going to follow with that. The clarity that Jesus brings is a profession of faith in the only place that our faith can be placed. An acknowledgement of God's love, God's goodness, and God's sovereignty. It's a declaration that God's knowledge is far beyond mine or anybody else's who's in power. That his will is better than mine. That his wisdom is higher than mine. So let's pray. Let's pray that the desires of our heart. Let's ask God's will to bless and protect our kids. Let's ask for God to open the eyes of the leaders in this country to what is right and to follow what is right. If there is to be comfort found, it's not in my hope that I make it home today. It's not in my hope that those I love dearly make it home today. I'll pray that. But my comfort is going to be found in the perfect God whose perfect character is always displayed by His perfect will. And I submit to that. Would you rise with me as we sing and give God the praise He so richly deserves. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the reminder that brings us perfect peace, comfort, and contentment because it rests in you, not in what's going on and swirling around us. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that you not only created us and created us for a purpose, but you have reached down to so many of us in this room and drawn us to yourself through salvation, through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have an opportunity to leave this place and minister in a community in your name and no other name. Father, we thank you. We have so much to be thankful for. We could go on and on, but now we lift our voices and praise you, for you alone are worthy. And we pray it in the name of Jesus who makes this possible. Amen.